Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week... A storm in a London Uber car. Sadiq Khan, the mayor, and Transport for London don't want to completely ban Uber. In an ideal world, they want to bring Uber back to the table and force it to obey not only the letter, but also the spirit of the law. And the day of the Miffids, too. It does actually have a pretty concrete impact on retail investors, which do add up to sort of real, you know, pence and pounds out of their pension pots. But first... Nightmare win for Merkel was the headline in the German newspaper The Bilt after Angela Merkel's hollow victory in the general election on Sunday. Her conservative Christian Democrat and Social Democrat alliance lost seats to the right-wing populist Alternative für Deutschland, or Alternative for Germany party. The SPD have ruled out another coalition with Mrs Merkel, meaning she may turn to the Liberals and Greens in a rare three-way coalition. Adam Roberts, our European business correspondent, is here to discuss what effect this might have on the markets and on business. Adam, let's start with AFD, Alternative for Germany. Uh, first entrance of an extreme right-wing party to Germany for more than five decades. How, how's business reacting? Well, obviously, people aren't uh, in, in the business world aren't too happy about this. Germany's economy depends enormously on exports, on trade with the rest of the world. It wants a very open trading system. It hates the idea of protectionists or anti-European parties getting getting more sway. They don't want to tilt in politics towards a sort of Trumpian, inward-looking, nationalist vein of politics. So we've already heard in the last couple of days from the bosses of VW, from Siemens, from the head of the Federation of German Industry, that they're very unhappy with the rise of the AFD. Messages such as the AFD doesn't stand for what makes Germany great, uh, warnings about the fears of returning to the 1930s and the rise of the Nazis, um, a great hostility to the sort of protectionism that the AFD is associated with. So those very big companies and associations are very clear they don't like the return of the far right in German politics. More generally, though, how have the markets reacted to the election? Is there a sense that there's now greater political uncertainty in Germany? Yes, there is uncertainty because this election result is not what we expected. It'll mean making a coalition government is going to take longer than maybe uh, people had hoped. And the, the fact that the Greens might come into government, uh, the, the, the Free Democrats will come in uh, with rather different ideas from the, the Christian Democrats about how to have relationships with the rest of Europe or what sort of economic policy or corporate policy there should be. That adds a lot of uncertainty, for example, for the energy industry or for the car makers. Let's look at car makers. How do they view the prospect of Greens in government? Presumably with some apprehension. Yes, so the, the Greens would obviously uh, like to see a quicker shift away from the sort of uh, pollution that is uh, poisoning German cities, like many cities in Europe and the rest of the world, the impact of lots of cars in the, in the streets, the, the effect of diesel, which is particularly heavily used in Germany, uh, is said to kill at least 10,000 people prematurely every year in Germany. Uh, the Greens are maybe not the most radical political party in Europe when it comes to pushing for electricity 
electric cars and so on, but they're certainly more radical than any other party in Germany. So the car makers are not going to be happy with the idea that Greens will come into government and perhaps set targets for sales of electric vehicles, which German car makers are very, very slow at developing. So if there's a push for quotas of electric cars, then it will go to benefit the likes of Tesla rather than Mercedes. And what about the energy industry? Of course, Germany forswore nuclear power after the Fukushima disaster. Uh, is it now going to go off coal as well? Well, we saw on Monday the, the share price of RWE, uh, an energy company that depends especially on uh, generating electricity by burning coal. Its share price performed particularly badly on Monday and early on Tuesday, again because of a fear that if the Greens come into government, they will push for a quicker move away from burning coal perhaps to do more renewables. The only option really for Germany would be more solar panels and more wind turbines if they're not going to turn those nuclear power stations back on. So the Greens may well be associated with those old-fashioned energy companies getting further hit by investors. Of course, the election has an impact far beyond Germany, in particular for the Eurozone as a whole. And we're seeing today Emmanuel Macron outlining his vision for the future. How is that likely to align with Mrs Merkel? This is bad news for Emmanuel Macron. I'm, I'm talking to you from Paris. Macron is going to give his speech where he was hoping to put pressure on the would-be coalition partners in Germany to sign up to his vision of a common finance minister for the euro area, to the idea that there should be a parliament for the euro area, and most important, that there should be fiscal transfers, the shift of wealth basically from Germany to poorer countries in Europe. Now it's going to be much harder for him to persuade the likes of the AFD or the Eurosceptic Free Democrats that this is a, an approach that Germany should take. So I think this election result has hit Mr Macron's ambitions quite badly. Adam Roberts, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, the new chief executive of Uber, Dara Khosrowshahi, has done something that would once have seemed out of character for the aggressive ride-hailing firm. He said sorry. He apologised to Londoners for mistakes we've made after Uber was threatened with the loss of its London licence. The economist Charles Reed is here and can navigate us through this story. Charles, so why is it at risk of losing its licence? Well, on Friday, Transport for London, which is the body which regulates um, the taxi trade in London, uh, said that it wouldn't, would not be renewing its licence at the end of this month because its licence was coming up for renewal on the 30th of September. The regulator came up with four reasons for this. The, the first few are to do with uh, safety checks. The Metropolitan Police Authority in London said that Uber hasn't been reporting serious crimes to it as it should have. Um, this included one incident where a driver threatened a passenger with pepper spray, which in Britain is a prohibited weapon as, as serious as having an automatic rifle. The second and third reasons were to do, uh, to do with um, security checks. It didn't like the way that Uber had been conducting uh, criminal records checks, and it didn't like the way that Uber had been processing medical checks. And then fourthly, it didn't like the uh, reports that Uber was using Grable software, um, which essentially um, is a software system which prevents regulators from seeing exactly what Uber is doing on the ground by displaying a fake map on its app um, when, you tr when regulators try to use it or follow what it's trying to do. But this is quite a big deal for Uber, right? London is a, a big, important market for it. So this is quite a headache for the new chief executive on top of all the other ones he inherited, which is 
why he was brought in? It's not simply a big problem. It's probably his number one biggest problem at the moment. This is partly because London is a big, big market for for Uber. Britain has the third largest taxi trade in the world. London is a flagship market for Uber, which the founder of Uber, Travis Kalanick, uh, prioritised early on in the app's development. The problem is also that other transit authorities, other regulators, look to Transport for London um, as a model for how they should behave. Um, it goes. It has consultants and uh, that it uh, rents out who goes around the world lecturing transit authorities about why they should never build a circle line or how to operate traffic lights in the most efficient manner. So Uber's problem is not that it's facing just regulators in London. The risk is that it embodies other regulators around the world to start saying that Uber has to follow, uh, follow the rules. And that, there has been something of a backlash among Londoners, hasn't there? There's a pe- petition circulating to let Uber stay. Is that representative? Do you think Londoners care a lot about this and are, are by and large in favour of Uber? I think a lot of Londoners are. Uber claims at least to have 3.5 million customers in London and so far nearly 800,000 have signed a um, petition to try to save Uber uh, on change.org and so far it's the uh, fastest growing petition on on change.org this year. And so there will be a lot of pressure on Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, to try and reinstate Uber's app. Sadiq Khan, the mayor, and Transport for London don't want to completely ban Uber. In an ideal world, they want to bring Uber back to the table and force it to obey not only the letter, but also the spirit of the law. Charles Reed, thank you very much for helping us steer through that tricky issue. So what do you think? Should Uber continue to operate in London? Please contact us via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. Finally, let's talk about MIFID 2. Even here at The Economist, hearts tend to sink at the mention of this sweeping array of regulatory reforms the European Union is introducing in financial markets from January. But in fact, the reforms are far from boring. And nor are the jitters in financial centres around the world as firms struggle to get ready for the changes. Krista Koskolo, our finance correspondent, is here to explain why we should get excited about all of this. OK, Krista, let's start with the big picture. What is the point of MIFID II? It's important to sort of think about the overarching goal of MIFID. And the overarching goal of MIFID is really to bring more transparency to financial markets. That's what all the little bits and bobs of it are sort of trying to do in different ways, in different asset classes, in different segments of the market. But shed more light on things, move trading onto sort of more open venues, exchanges or electronic platforms rather than having them happen sort of closed within investment banks or sort of bilaterally where where no regulator or, or no one else can sort of, or let's say small players don't don't know what's going on. So it sounds as if it's something that normal people, retail investors, should applaud. It is. It does actually have a pretty concrete impact on on retail investors, um, although it is sort of somewhat downstream. So there are all these sort of fees and transaction costs that go into into trading any sort of financial asset, which are very hard for any retail investor to get get grips on, but do add up to sort of real you know pence and pounds out of their pension pots. Um, if if their asset manager, so obviously the you know there is a fee with a with a fund that that will be stated in the fund's terms and conditions, but the fund manager themselves pays a huge amount of fees to the investment bank that actually implements their trades and that kind of stuff. And so, for example, one of the bits of MIFID that's been discussed 
a lot, even though it's only only one small part of the law, is research unbundling. So currently, the investment banks have huge research teams that produce reams and reams of, of paper uh, studies, either on individual companies or on big market trends. And, and that is basically indirectly paid for through fat brokerage fees that the asset managers pay to the brokers, both to execute the trades and sort of get the research as a side product. But much of it is sort of left on desks unread. And then now MIFID is forcing brokers to charge for research explicitly for the first time. So then asset managers will only pay for the stuff they actually need, which means that they'll end up paying less to their brokers, and then that ends up trickling down into more money left in pension pots. Now, correspondingly, I suppose, as retail investors have something to to applaud, the institutions seem to be, to a certain extent, up in arms about this. I mean, is it partly simply a question of the sheer complexity of this, that there's too much to do, too many reforms at once? Yeah, so obviously, as with any big financial reform, Dodd-Frank in the US a few years ago, MIFID 1, so MIFID 2 is a, is a basically a, a huge and significant reworking of MIFID 1, which was a law passed um, in, in the 2000s and implemented from 2007. Uh, the financial industry is always going to moan when big changes happen and they have to make investments for new IT systems and new new sorts of systems. Um, but but clearly the fact that they're, they they moan also means that they're losing out, which is usually good for the end investor. So you know reduces the fees that they take in the middle, and um, and and so that is something to applaud in in the, in the broad scheme of things. Although the the problem with Mifid too is is in some sense it's almost excessive ambition. So it tries to do so many things at once that there are lots of unresolved bits and pieces that that even some of the, the sort of regulators have not realized until quite late in the game. So the industry you know will always gripe, but some of their gripes really do do carry some merit and there's some there's some worrying aspects to, to the actual implementation of the law that it, it might well not work as as planned from January and it, it sort of depends a bit on how flexible the regulators are willing to be at the beginning to make sure everything is working. Krista Koskolo, thank you very much. Well that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And to read more about all the stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.